0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 121. Meshweshwi's eldest sons were now at a site that was to be named Moria, 24 miles south of Maseru, chosen by the two French missionaries, Arbuxoy and Casseli, for its beauty and the fact that it was uninhabited. But before we return to what was going on there, we need to swing around southern Africa for a little update about what was happening circa 1835 and 1836. The four-triggers were coming. Dingaan was marauding. More accurately, his impis were marauding. Port Natal traders were conniving. The Karana and the Griqua were expanding. The British were conquering. By now, Meshwesha of the Basutu was facing influx after influx including word that more than 8,000 and possibly as many as 12,000 people, mostly of the Rolong chief Mosimi, had arrived at busu his mountain redoubt, But there were also Griqua under Baran barons amongst these, and Bastards, under Karolus Baiki. He welcomed these immigrants, hoping for some protection against the Kora people, brigands who were operating with virtual impunity across the Orange River, predating on African groups as far as the Indebeli territory along the Vaal. But the Korra Heyday was actually over. By eighteen thirty five Mushreshwe's sons Letsi and Molapu were bent on proving their manhood and planning an attack on Korah villages, seeking bigger herds and more women. Mushweshu got wind of the plan and stopped them, fearing they'd both die in the attempt, and yet their attitude was a precursor to the Korra's final comeuppance. Mushreshwe was an expert at avoiding trouble if he could. He was going to need all his diplomatic skills because his territory was facing a buffeting. The fuertrekkers were beginning to appear, and even Koza refugees from the Sixth Frontier War had scattered seeking new homes. These Koza settled at Quetani under Chief Mjaluza, who joined the Kora people living along the Rit River, just west of where Kimberley is today. Soon Mushreshwe was hearing reports that Mjaluza was demanding a kind of travel and protection toll from Basutu, trying to return to Lesotho from the Cape Colony. Mjaluza was seizing their cattle. A short while later, Mushreshwe was told that two of his son's counsellors had been killed by Mjaluza. That was that for the bandit, a chief. In August 1836, Mushreshwe dispatched several regiments led by Lettse and Malapo, which deployed rather interesting tactics. They were to copy the Zulu and Indibeli technique by surrounding Mjaluza's village at night. They set fire to it just before dawn and then slaughtered virtually all the inhabitants who came running out of their torched homes. Around 150 survived the end of this carnage, about a quarter of all that lived there. Mushweshwe then turned his attention on another Kosa and Kora gang that had set up their new centre on the Rit River and had been raiding the Rolong. The Basutu approached under cover of darkness once more, but this time they deployed another tactic. They waited until the herds came out at daylight, then swept away the beasts. A return to earlier Basutu tactics, when led this attack himself, he preferred the older ways. Either way, both attacks were a success. The Basutu in the second attack had cleverly set up game traps pits with skins covered over with earth. The Korra leapt on their horses to chase the Basutu, but many plunged into these pits and were easy targets for the Basutu warriors. This was a serious blow to the Korra, and finally the tables had been turned. While a few remained to trouble the mission station at Bathsheba, others took off and conducted desultory raids on Mushreshu's most outlying homesteads, but the time of the Korra in Lesotho was passing. For the Basutu, this moment is regarded as the end of the Mphitani, or the Lifakani, as they called it. And for the missionaries, it was a sign that God had spoken that Mishweshi should owe his deliverance to God. Just to ensure that this was the narrative for the future, Kasali composed a hymn which is still sung in Lesotho today. The last verse goes, in the caves of darkness in the cannibals ruins there is sung a hymn of praise to god the country rejoices and is beauteous with villages prosperity has come instead of troubles there's another reason why the kora fled the four trekkers had arrived in the region later the trekkers would leverage the storyline in negotiations with mishweshwari along with the coming clashes with the mzilkatsi which were going to be bloody and gory the wesleyans the London Missionary Society disagreed. No, no, it was us, or at least it was we who had brought God into the land. It was God who drove out the Korah and the Nasty the and the cannibals. Finally, the two Frenchmen, Casale and Abusay, official Basutu French missionary elects, who preached it was their intervention. All three of these had a claim to success. The French needed the Basutu's gratitude to convert more heathens. The Afrikaners wanted Mosheshwe to grant them Basutu land, which is something the Wesleyans were eyeing as well. All three, however, were stretching their imaginations. The truth is the last major Korra attack had taken place two years before the missionaries arrived. It's true, though, that after the Fortrekkahs began appearing on the felt, the Korra attacks ceased almost entirely, and it's also true that Mosheshwe appealed for help from the Fortrekkahs. He exaggerated his need, but he did call for help. Later, as he grew anxious about maintaining good relations, he allowed the wildest pretensions to grow, where the footrekkers took on the crusaders' mantle, battling evil across the land and thereby saving Mushweshwe. That was going to lead to a major disagreement about what they wanted as payment. The land. Just to add a little bit more here, don't forget Meshweshwe hadn't actually been saved by his bribe to Mzilikatsi of cattle, nor to the foot-trickers, nor by the missionaries' zeal and their hymns. It was partly the Zulu who had renewed their assaults on the Indebelli chief over the Drakensberg that chased Mzilikatsi away. So, after scrutinising all these reports, listening to the stories, analysing the claims, it's become clear that the Sutu saved themselves, winning their own security, partly through superior numbers and partly through Buying horses and firearms. It was at this time that a series of decisions were taken by Moshreshwe, which resonate through the ages, as is the case with things southern African. It involved land. I'm going to describe a few transactions and the views about what happened. The fundamental difference between a European nation and a Sotho chiefdom is a definition of what is owned and by whom. It's a bit like modern social media platforms when you click the button that says, I agree and fail to read the fine print, then discover that platform is reading you top to bottom, inside out, back to front, and in triplicate. Most people are horrified and say, I never agree to this invasion of privacy, but by then it's too late. Your data is in the firm grasp of some flabby miscreant who defends himself, saying, but you should have read that fine print. I can spy on your innermost secret. Language and meaning is a slippery snake. So for the Basutu and the Batlokwa, the chief could rightfully lay claim to land occupied and used by subjects. In 1833, Kasali had carefully noted Mushreshri's comments about whether or not a particular territory belonged to him, and the chief said, Yes, and you see, by my people, wherever they are, that is my land. When asked to describe the boundaries, Mushreshri and Olbasutu would use a line that included the adherents' villages. But it wasn't a simple matter, because Meshweshwe also laid claim to land that he'd been forced to leave, vast tracts that extended as far north as the Vaal River, and even beyond the Vaal. Then Bele though, believed that land was theirs. By now, Meshweshwe had actually conceded that land to take up a defensive position in the mountains at Tababusu, and he could no longer claim the people living on the Vaal were his adherents. Or could he? This is once again where the Lepakani and its shattering effect on Southern African history cannot be underestimated. It's so intrinsic to our story right now because land is a political hot potato. As with all adherents of a chief, being distant from a center of power has its advantages. You enjoy a measure of freedom unknown to fellow subjects, and for these Basutu, on the edges of Meshweshwari's control, his fealty was of little significance. This is particularly true of the people along the north and northeast of Tababusiu. They would bend their knee to Meshweshwe. Once his back was turned, they'd bend their knee to Sekunyela. But for the most part, these distant villages actually conducted their lives without reference to either Meshweshwe or Sekunyela. They were the African frontiers men and women. Courageous, independent, not an automatron saying, Ya baas, to either Meshweshwe or Imzilakatsi or Sekunyela. So the possibility of confusion, you can see, was boundless. The Basutu would present leaders with their pehu, or tribute, saying, this was nothing more than a friendly gift, whereas the chief regarded the tribute as proof that the village was subjugating itself to his wishes. This is the cutting edge of the difference between what amounted to ownership in the sense of a European way and an African way. The fundamental difference between Sutu and European systems of land tenure was concealed by a superficial resemblance of Pehu. For the white settlers, the offer of land was ownership of land because it was based on a transfer price. For the Basutu, the Pehu was a presentation that could be superseded by another Pehu at some other date. No paper, no signing, no ownership, just leasehold. For the Europeans, it was not leasehold, it was freehold, it was transferred. The troublesome bit came in describing the title deed, if such a thing even existed. In some territories, where Meshweshwe said people had paid the Pehu, these were now abandoned, covered in dilapidated ruins, empty of people but vaguely presumed to be part of this Basutu chief's territory. Meshweshwe had given land to the missionaries, the Rolong, the Wesleyans and the Griqua, amongst others. When the Griqua arrived near Tabo Basu, they thought the Ramokeli Taung were the sole and rightful owners of the land, and because of this, it could be traded with them. So what happened next is disputed, and it's messy. The Arlongs claim that the Taung had paid some sort of gift to Mushwechwe, but they didn't think it was a full Behu. You can see where this is going, I'm sure. The Basutu oral tradition is somewhat different, arguing that Moroka of Raulong was fully aware that the Taung were actually Mushwechwe's subjects. That Moroka's messengers were escorted to Tabu Wisu's summit, where the Ralong humbly begged Mushweshwe permission to settle, and this was granted. Then Mushweshwe visited Moroka, who paid the Basutu regent cattle as perhu during a special gathering called a Pitsu, which you've heard about. Mushweshwe gave one of these cattle to Musemi, who was chief of the Taung, telling him, keep an eye on the Ralong." This can get tedious, some cutting straight to the chase. Whether or not Monsimani thought he was independent of the Basutu is mute, because it's a bit like saying the Cape Colony Boers were independent of the British. They may have thought they were, but they weren't. That's why they took off on the great trek. So here too, in the Basutu Mountains, Moshweshwe was the power, and Mosemi was not. The reason to spend time on this is because coming up the road with the wagons, guns and horses were the foot seeking the promised land, one without the cursed English lurking about. Another reason to spend time on this is because the land is under dispute, and it's vast. Watching and documenting all of this were the missionaries, and in particular Wesleyan missionary James Archbill. He said any cattle given to anyone is actually proof of Pehu, according to anyone else watching. For example, how about this transaction transposed into European legalese signed on the 7th of December 1833, which Archbell calls an indenture. An indenture in real estate is a deed in which two parties agreed to continuing obligations. For example, one party may agree to maintain a property and the other may agree to make payments on it. The term comes from the medieval English indenture of retainer, a legal contract written in duplicate on the same sheet, with the copies separated by cutting along a jagged line and indenture, in other words, so that the teeth of the two parts could later be refitted to confirm authenticity. Remember way back how I spoke about the tally sticks or split tally, where a stick was marked with a system of notches and then split lengthwise? The way the two halves record the same notches and each party to the transaction received one half of the marked stick as proof. Now comes the sticky bit, folks, the bit that makes you shake your head. This indenture, a territory of more than 5,000 square kilometers, including 26 villages, a population of more than 3,000, was handed over, one way or another, by Shre, to Chief Moroka of the Rolong. It was an indenture, as Archbell writes. For the absolute sale of the country hereafter, particularly mentioned at all for the price of seven young oxen, one heifer, two sheep, and one goat. Hold on, you're saying, how much for an area the size of a district of the free state? Yes, folks, seven oxen, one heifer, two sheep, and one goat. Firstly, was this freehold or titlehold? According to the missionaries, it was title or an indenture. One person lives in it, another pays for it. Yes, but who owned it, you ask? More than one person, it seemed, because on the same day, he apparently indentured the land to Chief Morocco of the Rolong, Mushreshwe added his mark to another document where he sold the same land to the missionary Archbel and somehow managed to name him sole owner. And for being sole owner, Archbel paid nine cattle, 17 sheep and a few goats. So what's going on here? Mushreshwe was not selling the land. He was obviously renting it, in his mind. He was allowing these men to pay him some pehu. He'd allow them to live there in peace, but the actual territory itself was not being handed over. They would be joint sole owners, so to speak. A cloud of misunderstanding now began to spread like a confusing fog. Morocco of the Rallong duly founded settlements around Tabo Busu. Nearby, Thomas Jenkins was a missionary, living with a few peaceful kora and a young captain. He said he wasn't sure to whom he should pay his pehu. The land was apparently both Moshweshwes and his sworn enemies, Sequinellis. After some arguments, Jenkins said the land was indeed Moshweshwes, and in February 1834, Malapu Moshweshwes' son sold the land around a place called Mpukani to Thomas Kebab, a quarter man. The price? Two oxen, five cows. The size? 2,000 square kilometers. Good land. Coming all the way from the mountains as far as the Caledon River, 22 villages, all owned by Moshweshwe. About 1,000 kora ended up living there as well. All of this territory was going to be disputed once the Fortrickers arrived and started doing land deals with the inhabitants. It needs to be clarified, all of these goings-ons, confusing, yes, who owned what? For the colonial land lawyers, an opportunity. Behind every deal was a government official waiting to ratify the documents. If London didn't think the deal was real then the colonial who concocted the document would find that he or she had no legal status. Up until the discovery of precious minerals in South Africa, the financiers in London were almost irrelevant when it came to Britain's colonial policy. It wasn't as if they had any real power. This was a backward agricultural nation with almost no manufacturing potential. Investors were hesitant. They were more likely to leap into Australia or Canada as parts of the empire that featured frontiers and land for the taking. The sob stories told by the 1820 settlers had shaken the resolve of joint venturists, and the Sixth Frontier War had reinforced Southern Africa as a wild frontier, far more violent and frightening than Australia. Cape Town was the strategic port. The rest of the country was more trouble than it was worth, thought successive British governments. Australia was building a vibrant economy through its wool industry, and with the founding of Melbourne in 1835, a flood of settlers began spreading out across the Australian continent. In three years to 1838, more land and more people were conquered than in the preceding 50. In England, Charles Dickens had just published his first part of Pickwick Papers in 1836, and the Americans had fought the Mexicans at the Battle of Alamo. Texas was formed, and the first numbered patent in America US Patent 1 was granted to John Ruggles for improvement to railroad steam locomotive wheels. Adelaide in South Australia was founded, and Charles Darwin returned to England aboard the Beagle with data he'd write up to develop his theory of evolution. The first phosphorus friction match was manufactured in Springfield, Massachusetts, and in South Africa, future Boer leader Pete Cronier was born. It was also the year that the inventor of the tarmac row, John McAdam, died. It's important to mention that because the voortrekkers were on their way and there weren't any tarmac roads. Rumbling along slowly at five miles a day, about eight kilometres on average, were two main leaders we heard about and will hear about again. Louis Trechard and Lang Hans Janssen van Rensburg. passed Sekebosrand, which had been the scene of a recent battle between the Zulu and the Endebele, then turned towards the Olifant's River and descended down the valley through a mountain range they named Sekwadi Port after the Bapedi chief sequadi He welcomed the travellers. They were passing through. After all, he had nothing to fear from the Boers. Travelling so closely, however, was proving a problem for van Rendsburg and Trichard. The Boer leadership had been prone to infighting and their relationship was no different. The conflict was sparked over Trichard's advice, which is actually good advice in retrospect, that van Rendsburg should stop killing so many elephants. His wagons were groaning with ivory. He'd wiped out entire herds and expending a vast quantity of gunpowder. He needed that to fight off rampaging hordes, said Trichard. But van Rensberg was in a rush to make his money, and when Trichard warned him to keep his wagons light for the last part of the journey through the mountains and conserve gunpowder, van Rensburg snapped, "Ik is man genoeg om na my eier trek om te sien. I'm man enough to look after my own trick. The two parties split up with van der Rendsburg on his way to a reckoning. More about that next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have an inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me, all through Twitter at deslatham. Until next, tot ziens.